start using cutting-edge warp speed 5G technology with your cell phone. Let me tell you about my friends at MobileMobile.io. They have an ultra-fast 4G LTE and 5G network that covers 99% of Americans. So they've got you covered everywhere. Think about it for a moment. You have the opportunity to take a test drive for 10 days with unlimited talk, text, and premium data. What is premium data? Premium data is an allotment of a cellular data that you receive from a higher priority on the network. You won't get throttled like you will with some of those, well, non-brand service providers. To find out more information, all you have to do is go to mobilemobile.io. That's mobilemobile.io to start your 10-day free trial. Broadcasting live from the Safety FM studios in Orlando, Florida. Here is your host, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. They're consultants that want to help you get the safety culture you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. On today's episode, we're going to have a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Rob Fisher. I have to tell you, I have just recently met Rob Fisher and he has already reached out and helped me and really saved me earlier in this week. And what do I mean by that? Well, early in the week, we actually had someone that was scheduled to come on and due to a family emergency, they were unable to make it. I put out a request online and Rob Fisher stepped up to the plate and decided to be a guest here on Safety FM. So let me tell you a little bit about Rob Fisher. Rob spent almost 10 years in the U.S. Navy before working with the South Texas Nuclear Project for 12 years. During this time, he worked in operations, chemistry, and environmental, and ultimately owned the human performance improvement initiatives and the procedure program through a difficult plant recovery time. In addition, he was always utilized as an industry internal consultant in these areas. Rob has been consulting since leaving commercial nuclear power operations in 1996. He is currently the president and director of operations for Fisher It Incorporated. Fit for short, of course. As a U.S.-based Native American and veteran-owned business headquartered in Concord, North Carolina. So I'm going to let you listen to this particular conversation with Rob Fisher. He really does have an interesting perspective when it comes to safety and especially when it comes to all aspects of human organizational performance. Take a listen here to Rob Fisher on Safety FM. You are listening to a renowned safety expert, Dr. Jay Allen on Safety FM. Changing safety cultures. One broadcast and one podcast at a time. Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM. Normally, the first question I normally ask most people, why did you decide to get into safety? Well, um, I have a nuclear background, started in the nuclear Navy, and was one of the original human performance people in the in the. Uh, nuclear world post three mile and post Chernobyl and did a lot with trying to take the human performance uh, theory 
and turn it into practical application as an employee at a, at a power plant that had gotten in some trouble, frankly. And we were using human performance to get us out of trouble because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at the time said that's what you need to do. But back then, human performance, or what they call HOP today, um, was about how do you protect the plant from the people. And as I started moving through, I started seeing that it's different when you try to protect the people from the plant. So I started focusing on that effort in about 1992. I started moving out into industry where it was the people that were getting uh, hurt, maimed, and killed, not the plant that was getting hurt, maimed, and killed. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> what I discovered was that the theories and philosophies don't change and the tools don't really change. It's only the outlook on the system that you design that changes. And so we started using um, human performance uh uh, human error reduction, mitigating strategies to try to protect people starting back in about 1995 or 96. And we've been doing that ever since. So, Mr. Fisher, if you don't mind me asking, how did you decide to get involved with the Navy? Did you go in saying, hey, this is what I want to do? I want to do the nuclear side of the Navy? Or was there something else that you were interested in when you first started? No, that that's a great question. It almost, almost leads to where I wound up today. I was actually given a, given a speech to a medical group last week in Houston. And, uh, and part of my story is that my mother passed away due to a, due to a metal, medical error in 1975. Now at the time I didn't know what that was, but I floundered around and ultimately left college and joined the Navy. I was trying to join the air force, but the air force person wasn't in the recruiting office that day. <laughs> So they kept giving me tests to take, and then the the recruiter's eyes got all big and said, do you qualify for the nuclear program? I said, that's okay. I don't know what that is. And uh, and so I kind of wound up in the nuclear program um, by accident. I was not setting out to do that. In fact, my personality is not such that it would lend itself naturally to to be in that that, uh, job. So I really had to fight some of my tendencies to make it through nuclear power school and then, and then to go on to work at nuclear power plants after the Navy uh, for about 10 years. So I, I was very lucky that um, kind of serendipitous, my uncle was, the, was on the Nautilus when it was commissioned and when it went around the world underwater for the first time. Oh, wow. And I actually did the radiological decommissioning of the Nautilus when I was in the Navy. So we have that family time. So, you know, I'm going to have to ask the question. So what exactly were you going to college to before the event happened with your mother? Chemistry and biology. Um, I, I went to Southwest Texas State in San Marcos, Texas. They tell me it was, uh, they tell me I had a very good time. And from what I remember, they were like, <laughs> it was the 70s. And uh, um I kind of put myself through college as Glurpo the Clown at the Ocarina Underwater Show at Ocarina Springs. So I played with college a little bit. I wasn't too good or too bad at it. My goal was I was going to try and get into the School of Pharmacology at, uh, at University of Houston. But that got upset when my mother uh, passed away. I went home to raise my two brothers uh, until my dad found his, found his wife and, and there was no need for me anymore. So let me just ask a strange question then. As you decide to go into the Navy, you join the Navy, and all of a sudden, the first time that you hear about human and organizational performance, 
what all of a sudden sticks with you that you go, hmm, this seems like a concept that's going to work. I can protect the the worker, not protect the plant, as you, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the service has a lot of the concepts baked in, which is what we promote should be happening in industry. In other words, people don't have to understand human performance or hop in the in the U.S. services because they're baked into the systems. But I was at a nuclear power plant, South Texas project, and when we got in trouble, these concepts were brought into us, and it just made so much sense to me that the human shouldn't be to blame for, for every single thing that goes wrong. And if there's a systemic approach to understand how we can put some protections in place to either reduce the probability that somebody makes a mistake or to mitigate the consequences of that mistake, that's what we need to be doing. And it was a, a bit of a tough road to hoe because that was not very nuclear in nature. Um, when I when I moved out into other industries, and I did that because the plant that I was working at, I guess I got good at it, so they started farming me out. And I just started seeing the light go off in people's eyes, and I started seeing them use the concepts and the tools the way I did. In other words, it wasn't just something that made sense to me. Physiologically, as humans, it was something we needed to help us reduce the probability that we were going to do something wrong at home, at work, or at play. So I got attracted to it because it helped me as an individual reduce my probabilities, and that helped me teach other people to do it. And there's there's just nothing better than, than, number one, seeing the light go off in people's eyes when they get it, and number two, hearing all the stories of, of how things could have gone wrong if they hadn't understood the concepts that we were teaching. Well, Mr. Fisher, at that time, let, let's just be real honest, behavior-based safety is still... I guess really you can say it's 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 the big safety program that's out there at the time. So as you're having these conversations with people and you turn around and you're telling them that error is normal because I'm assuming you know that's still the same one of the same concepts of pop from even back then. What are people telling you? Are they looking at you and saying you're crazy in regards to what you're trying to accomplish because keep in mind we're talking what 20 years ago at this point? Yeah, 25. Okay. And you know there was a little bit of that but what I've always tried to do, Jay, and, and I'm Rob, by the way, uh, what I've always tried to do is build a bridge for people instead of trying to segregate things. There was never a real separation between behavior-based safety and human performance. They were different ways of looking at the same coin. And um, when you build those bridges for people, senior leaders all the way to the floor and vice versa, they start to see where if they were really in the behavior-based safety camp, they started to see where there were some subtleties where human performance could help them understand better and see risk better and communicate better with their peers on that risk. If they were in the behavior-based safety sucks camp, which some people were back then, then they saw an alternative to saying they were in behavior-based safety, but still taking care of the human attribute. Am I making sense on that? Yeah, you're absolutely, you're absolutely making sense. But what I've noticed, and I can just only tell you from what I've done recently, 
sometimes people are so ingrained with certain things, and I'm talking more of their own version of a concept, not saying that, you know, they're married to behavior-based safety, not that they're married to lean and so on, but some of them really, they are, this is what I'm accustomed to, and this is what I gravitate to. So when you tell me something new, I don't want to hear it to some extent, and they just want to stick to the same mindset that they used before. And I mean, when we're going back 25 years, these are really updated concepts at the time. So I mean, that's why I keep on wondering, how did it go? But if you're saying there really wasn't a, a, a bridge to build for the time frame, it just becomes very, very interesting on the people who were that open even at that time. Well, I think, I think that because I came at it from an operator background and then went up through management. So we built our methods from the from the floor to the C-suite, but we deliver them from the C-suite to the floor. And and what I mean by that is that it, those conversations about having to change paradigms are tougher in with the executives and leaders than they are with the workforce. The workforce is looking for ways that they can do what they do better and have less pain wherever that pain comes from. The leaders are usually the ones that are ingrained. So over the years, I just developed a way to talk to them that that builds that bridge. And I, I love, you know, I was talking to Sidney Decker one day, and 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 he said a line that had that has stuck with me for years, and that is that people will not abandon their paradigm unless you give them one that makes more sense. That's and, great. That's that's really, that's that's a really good quote. And so years ago, that was what we did. We started building those bridges, um, not for people to abandon their paradigm. I, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit controversial here. And, you know, you have different people in the different uh, camps that are saying, oh, the, the pyramid's wrong. It's, it's not right. I, I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong. That's not for me to say. But I know that if somebody's sitting there, and they believe in it, and I want them to believe something different. I have to draw. I have to draw that path for them, and it has to make more sense. I can't just tell them you can't believe like you've believed for thirty years. You need to get on board and believe this way. So our job, as an individual in the beginning and now as a company, has been to draw those bridges to change the paradigms, and it can be done very, very quickly. Um, that's the other. I think miss um, I think a lot of people miss how quickly that can happen if you give people the science behind the bases of the new paradigm that you want them to move to. Well, I think that sometimes that's what we run into as an issue. And let me explain why I say that. And I'm going to use the C level because that's where a lot of the conversations take place, at least with the people that I, that I interact with. And sometimes I think that they have the hardest time adjusting, as you were stating earlier, because there's a bonus structure related to it. There's a tie-in to a financial gain. And all of a sudden, you're going to give me something that's a concept or a philosophy, depending on who you're speaking with. So how is that going to work inside of my organization? And how is this going to change? So do you get the common question of how long is this going to take to implement or what is my return on investment? I'll tell you, I've asked that question a couple of times to people on here, and I had one guy that I felt like I offended him by even by even asking that question. So I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to see what the perspective that you normally go through. 
Well, I, I think if you have a responsible senior leader, they have no choice but to ask that question, uh, especially if they owe their shareholders an answer to why they're going to spend money on something, whatever it is. So we have to be, we have to understand the return on investment. And one of the challenges with safety over the decades has been that nobody really took the return on investment seriously, except in the pompous, well, less people will get hurt. And that was very opinionated. In other words, prove it to me first. Well, how do I prove it if you don't deploy? And, and if I can't prove it to you, you're not going to do it. So there's this don't loop that, that people got into. So we had to, you have to understand that if you do human and organizational performance right, or HP right, or what we call advanced error reduction and organizations right, the ROI is a physical ROI in the things that hard dollars apply to, and you get the safety benefits. It's not an or. So, I mean, if you understand what the real returns on investment are beyond the safety attribute and how the system doesn't care whether you're doing something related to quality, safety, effectiveness, efficiency, or productivity, you say, look, safety is one attribute. If I dropped your safety metric out of your bonus, you're still going to make more money as a, as a leader if all of these other attributes are in there because they're going to be improving. Your quality is going to go up. Your customer satisfaction is going to go up. Your, your uh, rework is going to go down. All of those things mean hard dollars. And you're, and you're busy over here worrying about a soft dollar people-related poor indicator on total recordables that everybody back in the day used to manipulate anyway. Probably doesn't happen as much anymore. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, the, the funny part is that we have a terrible relationship with metrics. And that's just something that's been established within the industry. And until we get to the point where that really changes, I think we're going to have a lot of difficulty with certain organizations, not all, to actually have them understand what ne changes need to go into place. Because keep in mind that a lot of companies, and I'm, I can only and I can say this to you because it sounds like you interact with quite a few of them, is that when you go in and you, they want to make sure that they're going to be safer, quote unquote. And the problem that you run into is the things that hurt people are not the same things that kill people. And a lot of times some of the C-level executives get confused on that. Like I tell people all the time, and, I, and I'll tell you, I stole this line from Todd Conklin. I've never seen someone die from an ankle sprain. Now, what I've added to his line is the day that somebody does, I will probably end up changing careers. But it's always amazing to me that we try to focus on some things that are not as important. Don't get me wrong. I don't want somebody to have a soft tissue injury. But also at the same time, what are we really supposed to be focusing on when we're building a safety quote unquote program opposed to, you know, what some of the, the C-level executives think of? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I'll just tell you our approach is that, and, and my approach has been for decades now, to have the conversation with them that those things are different. Uh, I, I use a very simple uh, example that when you, if, if somebody decides they're going to jump out of a perfectly good airplane and the chute doesn't open, there ain't no first aids. There's no recordable. There's no lost work day. When you hit the ground, there's a very, very high probability you're going to die. 
So things that have fatality, serious life-altering injury potential have to be thought about differently from a perspective of prevention or mitigation. And that starts to shift their mindset a little bit. So what do we do to keep somebody from dying if the chute doesn't open? Well, the funny thing is, just like in other parts of our workforce, the, the person doing the jump may not have packed the chute. So they don't know whether the chute's going to open or not. We give them a second chute. But what if we, what if in that second chute, we just told them, don't worry about it. If the first chute doesn't open, open the second one. But I would say that most people, let's say they're doing a tandem jump, would panic if that first chute didn't open. And they're losing moments as they go. Explaining things in a way that can get people to understand that with, this isn't just a work thing. Um, there are going to be people, look, look what happened in New York City. Uh, a young lady tripped falling downstairs and died because she was having to carry her child's stroller down into the subway. It was the only way to get there. We can talk about all the systemic drivers about that, but how many times a day do we think somebody falls down the stairs at, at, uh, in New York City going to a subway? And the answer to that is a lot. So um, I, I think once you open up the doors of frank conversation about the difference between for lack of a better term, low-level injuries and things that provide fatality, serious life-altering injuries, they start to think differently. Then the door opens to the science and the bases and how to look at errors differently and, and how to look at violations differently. So that that's a piece of the opening as opposed to the closing. But again, you've got to give them that other paradigm and it's got to make sense to them. So that initial conversation that you have with the executives at a company that you're assisting with, how long does that normally take? Because keep in mind that you're doing the evangelist work there, and I and I don't mean that as trying to be insulting, but you're really you're really pitching something that they can't see, touch, or feel. So you're gonna have to really spend your time there going, hey, boom, 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 off the cuff. So how long do you normally do that initial investment in that first meeting per se? Well, that, that's kind of a good news, bad news for us. You know, a lot of times when I go in, Jay, or one of one of our folks goes in to have that meeting, they're already looking for something. They know they need to think differently, but they don't know what that looks like. Um, so we've been lucky to have been selected to be the ones that may tell them a different way to think. Maybe someone in their organization has come from another organization that did this and has told them, you know, we're not going to get anywhere doing the same thing over and over again. Maybe they're the ones that came from another company. They go into a, a senior leader group that, that believes that, that blaming and accountability are, are all the way to go. Um, so I, there's a lot of open minds out there. I think, you know, you look at oil and gas, almost all of the, the major oil and gas companies are moving in a direction that they're looking at things differently. I know, I know for a fact, one of them has eliminated things like uh, total recordables, lost work days from their bonus structure. Um, they, they don't really even look at it as a KPI. It's not that they don't exist or they don't look at them. It's that it's not a KPI for them. So there's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of churn. And I, I really think that senior leaders, by the time I get a call, 
are open-minded to look at something different. And I, I just see a lot of ahas. I know that was a, a very long answer. Our initial senior leader contact, sometimes it's about an hour on a WebEx. That makes them think there's probably something out there. But it's about four to six hours of, of workshop where they get taken on the journey of wherever they're at to where they need to go. And then at the end, what we do is we give them tools that they can use when they walk out the door to think differently and behave a little bit differently related to prevention and correction. So they get to try it. We call that soak time. And it is very, very rare that a leadership team walks out, goes through soak time, says, nah, didn't work. And I can almost count on one hand the ones that said not didn't work and every single one of them were not they didn't do anything. So the senior leader that was pulling the most strings um, didn't do what they needed to do to change to change the paradigm. And we'll be back right after this here on Safety FM. Have you listened to our new show, Safety Talks with Steve Sisson? If you haven't, this is a great opportunity to go out there, take a listen to Safety Talks with Steve Sisson. It's available on safetyfm.com and on safetyfm.live, and it's also available on your favorite podcatcher. Let's check in with Steve and see what's coming up this week. Hey, Steve. Well, Jay, on the next episode of Safety Talks, we speak with inventor, president, and CEO of SureShim, Craig Davies. You won't want to miss this one if you're in the trucking industry. Please join me on the next episode of Safety Talks, where we talk all things safety. Back to you, Jay. And we're speaking to Rob Fisher from Fisher Improvement Technologies. He's also the president and director of operations. So let me go down this path because, you know, we, we kind of jumped over part of the story. How do you decide going from nuclear and saying, hey, I want to start my own company, and this is what I'm going to move forward with. Yeah. Um, well, I, I started getting farmed out from the company that I worked for. So they were sending me all over the place. I was going to airlines and schools and manufacturing plants and, and other utilities. And and I went home one day, and my wife, my, my kids were fairly young at that time. And my wife said, look, you know, you're traveling 50% of the time. And they're still paying you like a supervisor at the power plant. I'm pretty sure people get paid to do this. And you're either good at it, that's why they send you out, or they just don't want you around the plant, in which case you're not doing anything anyway. <laughs> so what what do you want to do? Do you want to do this and have some benefit to our family? Or do you want to go back or do you want to stop? And I wasn't the brightest tool in the shed at the time. But I will tell you, my wife owns 25% of our company, and this is why. Because she pushes those elements um, that need a decision. So I went to my vice president and said, you can't farm me out anymore. I'm not going to do it. I'll just stay right here. I'll go back to being uh, an operations supervisor, and uh, but you can't farm me out because I'm not leaving my family. And they said, okay. About a week later, uh, uh, ex-boss called and said, hey, I'd like you to come 
help me deploy it at my plant. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. And he said, well, I'll pay you. I said, huh? okay. <laughs> so, so I went over and took some days of vacation and then I wrote up a, a little contract. This is in 1993, I believe, wrote up a little contract and, and I charged him my, the amount of money I made as an operator divided into hours to, to help him deploy these concepts. And at the end of the deployment, he called me into his office and said, I want to tell you two things. Uh, one of them's personal and one of them's professional. I said, okay. The personal thing is, this is what you need to be doing for a living. Uh, you're good at it. Uh, if you decide you're going to do it, then I got five people lined up that would really like your help. But I don't think you can do it working for somebody else. And, uh, and the professional thing is you need to charge for your services what the benefits are to the organization. You, you charged us X amount, but you saved us, saved us close to $3 million in two quarters. And there has to be some kind of rep, requisite ROI to you to do this. So take that or leave it. So I went back home, talked to my wife, talked to my boss, and uh, feel free to cut out any of this you want. <laughs> and, uh, and the boss said, well, we really don't want you to leave. If you want to do that part-time and stay here part-time, we've got some goals that we want to achieve. So I spent another 18 months uh, doing both. And then, and then it became time to, time to leave. No, I, I, have to, I have to tell you, no, I'm not going to really cut anything out because I find those stories so interesting because a lot of people that get involved, at least with this safety differently hop, you know, depending on whatever you want to call it, it's always an interesting story because I look at it as the, the Bruce Wayne Batman story. I look at it as the Clark Kent Superman. It always starts off with a duality scenario. There's not someone who jumps in full force and says, hey, I'm a consultant and that's what we're going to run with. So I always find it interesting on how those stories normally start. And as I say that, were you hesitant at first? I know you said that you, know, that you had kind of like an 18-month transition, but were you nervous of, well, I'm kind of accustomed to having the consistent work and the consistent money that's coming in from the power plant, but now I'm going at it from, I am bringing in this money directly. How was that approach to you? Because to some people, that, that scares people, and to some other people, they, they love the challenge. So how did it come about for you? Well, it, when it came time, we actually had some very good friends pull my wife over to the side and say, don't let this crazy man do this. He's going to ruin your family, and you're going to go broke. He's not very good at it. This human performance thing is a fad, and, uh, and it's not going to go anywhere. There's nobody out there that really wants to do it. He's just been lucky. Please, please, please don't do this to your family. And we had the conversation and she said, look, you have proven that you know what you're doing. And, you know, as the, as the years have gone by, this is actually kind of hard to talk about. As the years have gone by, I will, I will talk about how lucky we've been. And she will say sometimes, yeah, you were, you were real lucky. You, you were the guy that was one of the original five or ten people that brought human performance into the nuclear industry in the U.S. and then, and then took it over, um, over to Europe and some other places. And any of those people could be doing what you're doing right now, but you're the only one that has created the systems, created a holistic approach, continually improved, hop, and been out there on the, on the leading edge 
for 25 years. She says, I, I just don't see that as luck. I see it as, as hard work and really, really wanting to help people that are out there. I mean, our, our, our vision is improving companies and lives through the creative application of technology. And that's, we focus on it every day. And I just feel so, <laughs> so great about being able to do this. And of course, you know, there were times, you know, consulting, it has its ups, its downs, its roller coasters. And now with an organization that has about, you know, almost 20 consultants and five direct employees and a building and a center for excellence here in Charlotte, North Carolina, I don't think any of that ever goes away if you really care about what you do. So, uh, is it, is it scary? Sure. I, I don't know that that ever goes away for me. So let me ask you the question here. It's 25 years later from when you started this. And as you look at this, does it bother you that people still consider this new view safety 25 years later? Shouldn't it be kind of common practice at this point? Yes. I, I think what bothers me the most is that we can't seem to get the academics who all the science came from to adopt it as something that people need to learn through their education process. So in the last five years, we've added the understanding that our personality tendencies are a big part of how we see and manage risk. Huge. And we're very predictable within those personality tendencies. You know, if, if you go into schools like uh, Equilibria and eColors in Education will go into schools, they'll help younger kids understand their personality tendencies and bullying virtually disappears. Um, graduation rates go up. Test scores go up. We won't even teach. Um, we won't even teach human performance or hot basic concepts in a safety program at a university. And now there's a couple out there that are thinking about it, but you know, that's why it takes 25 or 30 years. I mean, think about, think about STEM processes. They tend to draw in kids with certain personality types and tendencies. And if you're, if you're like me, more creative, more abstract, um, not as much, not as linear, then I get weeded out pretty easily from a process like that. But imagine what it would be like if those processes taught this stuff starting in about high school. And, and we just, we're, we're working on that right now uh, as the next phase. So if it took 25 years to get there, heck, who knows how long it took to, to invent penicillin. Right. But once everybody was into it, now, now we know what to do. Very true. I mean, it's the way that you actually put that out there. It makes sense. I guess I, I sit here and I'm surprised at times that, you know, it's taken this long to get there. And it's not that, you know, I expected everybody to jump on the same bandwagon and run with it. But I'm amazed on the amount of consultants that are out there in regards of that. This is what they're teaching. And of course, they all do their own little adaptation of it. I'm still waiting for somebody to try to steal the whole bad boy and go, um, I trademarked it. Now it's mine, which I would kind of chuckle at to some extent. So I know you referenced earlier that you were one of the first five or so people to really start introducing this. So who else would you give credit to in doing some of these introductions at the time? 
Well, I mean, you had Tony Mascera, who you probably know. Um, and most of the other people were embedded. L.D. Holland at Duke, Duke Energy. Uh, Karen Jennings, uh, Karen Hammond now uh, with Florida Power. Um, it, was a, it was a group of nukes, Ed Frederick up at Three Mile Island. You know, uh, we're all, for lack of a better way to say it, old now. And, and they went their different paths. They implemented at their facilities. Tony was the master. And, of course, he's, he has a, a very good book out on risk management. And uh, um, that group, we just kind of all learned together. And I was kind of the practical applications guy. So I would try almost anything to reduce the probability or mitigate the consequences at the hands of the people that were getting hurt, maimed, and killed. And some of it worked, some of it didn't. Uh, whether it meant refining the tools or um, understanding that different people with different personalities get hurt differently, uh, I was I was just all into the practical application side because that was where I came from. Uh, Tony is probably one of the best theoreticians, if that's a word, um, in the world related to human and organizational performance. He's certainly one of the most studious. Um, so, th I mean, that was, you know, we, we would have James Reason come over and sit in a room with 10 or 12 of us back in the day and talk about what he was thinking related to, uh, to human error or managing the risks of organizational accidents. We had, you know, right after Sidney Decker wrote the field guide to understanding human error, um, he was, we were picking his brain on, on how it could be practically applied. So I, I certainly don't want to take credit for being the guy uh, at all because it was it was a very much team effort, and everybody played some very specific roles. Bob Coover from, uh, from Exelon was, was in, that, in that area. Chong Chu from PII was in that area. Uh, Craig Clapper, who is now in, in the medical industry, was, was in that area. So there were, there were a bunch of us. Um, some of us were just living it every single day. And the goal, with the goal being, it has to be practically applicable or it's not going to be sustainable. And, and that sustainability wasn't even a, a buzzword back then. But that's what you had to look for. You had to look for something that wasn't going to be a program that was going to stick to become a way we did business. And, you know, I, I hear the line a lot of, the people that do hop are standing on shoulders of giants. And I don't disagree with, with the comment, but here's my question to you. You have your own consulting company and there's other people that are out there currently in the industry and they swear that their version of hop is better than others. And to me, it should be relatively close. At least that's my opinion. So when you hear lines like that and you being a consultant, how does that make you feel overall? Well, you know, I try not to feel about it. I, I think people have to um, people have to find a way to get people to come their way because they've chosen to do this for a living. Um, I, we, I know we have probably the most holistic approach that includes um, understanding how incidents happen, uh, learning. Uh, from from problems and just learning in general procedures. We have apps uh, for technology-based pre-task briefings. We have free apps that have, 
that have gone all over the world to to help people talk about tasks before they do them. Um, I, you know, I, I think that they honestly, that people honestly believe that they're different and they're the best and it doesn't bother me. We just have to keep doing what we do and uh, uh, continue to push that envelope. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound egotistical, but I'm a little bit proud that a lot of the things that we do, couple of years later come down the road mixed as something else because that means we're out there uh, exploring and pioneering so that other people can become settlers I mean you can build some really great houses as a settler um, and, and pioneers and and, uh, and people who are out there on that leading edge we really don't have time to build houses and plant fields, if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. But what I always kind of find interesting is that if you kind of do a little bit of research on some of the people that are out there, you know, screaming about how they're the best and look at me and all that kind of fun stuff, they do a lot of repackaging. And it seems like they're taking the same concept over and over and repackaging it once they do it in one format, then they change it a little bit, and then they kind of go back to the same thing. And I'm not here trying to nitpick, but I just as one of the the first people to do it as you are i just kind of have always wondered how do you feel about it and that's why i asked the question so i do appreciate the explanation so as you've been in this field for the last 25 years what do you see as the changes coming up in the industry and i'm not saying changes just in and hop in general but what changes do you see coming down the pike well i think the biggest changes are going to come in and automation and the individuals who come in contact with the things that could hurt, maim, or kill them, and how we ena- enable people to prevent that harm. Um, the it's not just going to be automation; it's going to be our interaction with with people. There's probably going to be fewer of them. Uh, the technology is going to be higher, so that we're going to need to pay more attention to what we tell people and how, how they manage when things go wrong. Um, and I think we really need to be prepared for that. I think on the hop side, certainly the, the in, uh, institution of the personality tendencies and seeing and manage, managing risk is the next logical step uh, for hop because it hasn't been included and it's such a huge component of, of how people get hurt. Absolutely. Now, I have a question for you. If people want to have more information about your company, Fisher Improvement Technologies, what do they need to do? I think the simplest thing to do is uh, is go to our website, improvewithfit.com, and just poke around on it. There's a pretty good introductory video on the front page. Uh, in some of the back area, we've got a bunch of the videos and, and things that we've been putting out. We've been trying, we've been trying to use LinkedIn to help. Um, in other words, posting things I've learned over the last empty frat years, and, and uh, we call them observations, uh, <laughs> things that I see out there, and uh, conversations that I have. And, and really, it's not a promotion of us. It's a it's a, a goal to help people. That's kind of the end answer to your previous question as well. Is you know, if, if these folks are repackaging and helping people. And fewer people get hurt, maimed, and killed. Good on you. Um, that's what that's what we're here for. That's what it is for. Um, we all do that well. 
then maybe there's a day when there doesn't need to be a bunch of consultants out there doing that because it's part of the way that safety is taught and done from the time people hear the word. Um, and uh, also, you know, people are free to follow follow me on LinkedIn. You can, if you're Facebook people, you can follow our company on on Facebook as well. We we post things there, and what we try to do is is put things together that people can use. We also run open enrollment workshops here in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, in the Concord area because we have a center for excellence here that. Uh, on the website, it lists the upcoming workshops and, and we'll be posting when we're doing them other places as well. I'll be in Perth, Australia, the 5th to the 9th of March and in, in uh, Brisbane, the uh, 11th through the 13th of March. So when we'll be posting where I'm going at in the world as well. So, so people can have interactions, even if it's a cup of coffee. Um, so that's, there's probably more that's I think that's the easiest thing to do is just go to the website and poke around a little bit. So let me ask you a question real quick. As you say center of excellence, what exactly does that mean? Well, we have a, a training room and a printing processing room. The, the center for excellence has four writable walls. So we have client meetings there. We have uh, intentional leadership Academy there. We're, we're uh, pushing uh, leading with intent Um and, and understanding how the personality tendency elements play into leadership roles. So we do all types of workshops and, and, uh, and host meetings in the Center for Excellence. So it's kind of, our, kind of a place to bring people that isn't at their workplace, kind of frees them up to, uh, um, to learn and, and, uh, and experience things. And so we do we do workshops here three four five times a month, and we also do client led workshops here as well. Well, Rob, I appreciate you coming on to Safety FM. I, I appreciate you having me, Jay. If there's if there's ever any time that you want to talk again, I'd love to. It's been a great experience. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. SafetyFM.com So do you feel like you're missing out on what everyone is starting to do now, that live streaming thing, and you don't know where to start or what to do? I have the resource and the information to provide to you in regards on how you can stream onto 40 social media platforms all at one time. Yes, that's 44-0 social media platforms all at one time. All you'll need to do is go to safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's O-N-E. So just in case, and you'll be able to start live streaming 
just like you're hearing people starting to do right now up to 40 social media platforms.